Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm just a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. And today, I'm fortunate to talk to Rose Kapolchinski. Rose has four decades working in politics, managed four successful elections for Senator Barbara Boxer, worked on the Hill, worked on presidential races, started her own consulting firm, and is currently the president of the American Association of Political Consultants. Simply put, Rose is one of the giants of the political consulting industry, and I immensely enjoyed our conversation. Rose Kapolchinski, tell me about how you grew up. Well, I grew up in a working class household. Uh, my mom was a waitress. Uh, my dad was a construction worker and then a janitor. Um, uh, we moved around a lot. Um, and politics wasn't uh, a focus in our household, but uh, my parents always read the news and uh, talked about it. Um, uh, and growing up, um, some of the the things that affected me most were um, things that affected a lot of people growing up in the 60s. Um, I was eight in 1963, um, 13 in 1968, and those assassinations and the unrest, um, particularly in 1968, had a, a big impact on me. Um, and in 1970, Earth Day, I was in high school. Um, I'd always loved the outdoors and uh, uh, my high school science teacher, uh, Mr. Gatsky decided to form an ecology club and uh, I signed right up for it. And uh, he was really uh, a pivotal influence in both my understanding of uh, environmental issues and the new science of ecology uh, but also how to make a difference. He took us to county council meetings and showed how how ordinances were passed. And well, and you mentioned you grew, you moved around a bit. Where was where were you at this point in your life? Uh, that was Wisconsin, um, and uh, uh, and so um, you know, not an overtly um, political household, but I grew up in a very political time made me really think about how could I make a difference. Um, and the women's equality movement was also um, uh, very robust at the time. And uh, so I had a lot of eye-opening experiences as a teenager that uh, I think really set me on my uh, path. Yeah, we'll talk about that era some because you're not of that generation. It gets things are oversimplified. It's Woodstock. It's the 68 riots at the convention. It's assassinations. It's the Martin Luther King speech. It, it's sort of four or five touch points. Uh, and that's all you get of that era. But yeah, somebody who came of age and uh, was so such an integral pivotal part in your development. Talk a little bit about that era from your perspective. Yeah, of course, the Vietnam War was uh, a huge backdrop to all of this. Uh, but overall, it was a, a time when um, opportunities were being opened up for people. Uh, opportunities to look at things in a different way where the environment was concerned. Um, and a real sense that people uh, mobilizing, uh, working together, organizing uh, could make a difference. Um, but a very uh, tumultuous and troubled time. I remember my parents talking about, are there going to be riots in every 
city in America um, after the assassinations in 1968. Uh, you know, there were in many cities, but it didn't reach our small town, but the, it created anxiety. Um, and then Richard Nixon, perhaps not as overtly hateful as Donald Trump, uh, but was a similar figure um, to Trump, uh, uh, to progressives. And I did my first uh, campaign canvassing for George McGovern. I was in high school. I couldn't vote yet. I wasn't old enough, but uh, I organized, I got so excited about George McGovern that I organized uh, busloads of my fellow high school students to go to Michigan and canvas there as well as in Wisconsin. What was your first actual job in politics? Yeah, well, my um, uh, first job out of college was as an environmental organizer and lobbyist. Um, and I was in Colorado at that time, worked with Senator Gary Hart's staff on a, a massive Colorado wilderness bill and got to know all of them. Uh, and uh, uh, and then I went to work for the Sierra Club in Seattle. And uh, one of the great things about the Sierra Club at that time was that they donated staff as an in-kind contribution to candidates. And I had a tiny bit of experience in my past. And so uh, I uh, eagerly volunteered uh, to help candidates, including Gary Hart, uh, Frank Church, uh, many other candidates around the Northwest. Um, and uh, uh, in, I was working for the Sierra Club as a lobbyist and organizer um, based in Seattle. And one day the phone rang and it was Gary Hart's environmental aide saying, hey, Gary's going to run for president. I'm embarrassed to say I burst out laughing now. <laughs> I I thought he was joking, um, but they were looking for someone to organize environmentalists. Hart had a strong environmental record. And um, I thought, wow, this might be the only time I get offered a full-time job in politics. I, right. I, I have to do it. Right. And um, Gary Hart had been the campaign manager for George McGovern, who you had worked with a decade or more uh, before. I, I do want to have yeah. a couple of questions about Gary Hart, but talk a little bit about the environmental movement at that time. For someone coming of, of age today, you could be forgiven to thinking, okay, well, the environmental movement's been there a hundred years. We've always, this has always been something, but really this is something, you know, really in your, in your generation, uh, it's not that long ago that that was a new priority. Yeah, there are two really notable things. One is it was very controversial inside the Sierra Club when they started a PAC for the first time in 1980. Many, many Sierra Club members and other environmental groups said, look, we have the League of Conservation Voters for politics. The rest of us should stay out of it because politics is dirty and corrupt and just not where we should stay above the fray um, and not choose sides and campaigns. Um, now it now many, many groups um, have a political arm and uh, recognize the, that this is a tool in the toolbox for change. Um, the other thing is that um, the environment was not uh, uh, primarily a democratic issue at that time. In uh, Washington State, where I was working on a wilderness bill, uh, we didn't have labor's support because labor um, was uh, interested in jobs, um, 
building roads, cutting trees, uh, building dams. Um, uh, and yet suburban Republican members of Congress, uh, when those existed uh, back then, uh, were very pro-environment because their constituents valued you know, the outdoor experience and environmental values. Um, and so it was uh, a much different coalition than you see today where um, certainly environment as an issue has become more popular overall and more uh, supported by the public. Uh, it's identified as one of the progressive issues. Tell me about, you mentioned uh, the Gary Hart campaign, and even though he had been a manager for George McGovern, he actually was sort of an evolution, uh, was not necessarily a, a McGovern-style Democrat by the time he had uh, served in office. Talk about that campaign and, and give a little bit more um, a 3D portrait of Gary Hart. There are parallels to the 1984 primary and the 2020 primary season. Um, in 1984, many people believed that Walter Mondale was not electable um, uh, running against Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan was popular um, and Mondale had been Jimmy Carter's vice president and therefore and was older um, and therefore represented the past. And Carter um, had lost in a landslide to Reagan four years before. Exactly. Um, and so there was a, a feeling that we had to do anything to get Reagan out of office. At that time, uh, Reagan was considered uh, reckless uh, in his views on nuclear weapons. Um, he had uh, aggressively uh, pursued union busting and had slashed federal government. He had a anti-environmentalist in charge of the interior department. And so uh, there was an intense interest in in defeating Reagan and many people felt that Mondale was the wrong choice. It was a big primary. Uh, John Glenn was in that primary as well. Um, Jesse Jackson and Gary Hart and Hart framed himself as a new generation. Um, I think there was a tagline, a new generation of leadership on a lot of at least the primary season. Um, and polls showed in the spring of 1984, during the primary season, polls showed that uh, Hart would uh, beat Reagan by a bigger margin than any other candidate. So there was uh, some data backing up the theory that he would be stronger. Now, he was also untested. And during that campaign, things were revealed, such as he had, he had shortened his name, which wasn't that unusual. Um, many people with long names, particularly ethnic names, shortened them. Um, all of my father's brothers shortened their name to Kappel to be more acceptable in America as an immigrant. But Hart had changed his name. He had changed his signature. You know, there were things that, that raised questions about his character because he wasn't very well known. But many of us felt that... Uh, he was the most forward-looking candidate and on issues like the environment had um, broken with some of labor to support land preservation and much more aggressive clean air um, standards, things like that. It was a great campaign to work on because 
there were so few staff that you got to do everything. And I often recommend to young people wanting to get involved in politics that they go work on an underdog campaign because the front runner, particularly for president, there's layers and layers and layers of people who are well-known, highly experienced, uh, and you're gonna be at the bottom. Um, In the Gary Hart campaign, I started as an environmental organizer. Um, I I moved to DC to, to work at the headquarters but I also went to Iowa for the JJ dinner and helped organize that. I got sent on a trip to New Hampshire because there was no one else to go. I learned how to build a rally from Steve Rabinowitz in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, I staffed a television advertising shoot because no one was available to deliver sandwiches. And I ended up running the Washington state caucuses, uh, then going to Wisconsin for that primary, uh, going to the Oregon for the primary there, and then ending up in California, ended up in senior positions in all of those um, states, and then went on to the convention. And I learned more in that year than I learned in the next 10 years, probably. And Hart had Mondale on the ropes for much of that campaign, right? As you as you say, went from somebody who you were not quite sure how serious he was going to be when the job was offered to you to being really very, very close to the nomination. Exactly. It went all the way through the, the final primaries in June, um, California and New Jersey. And that was a very interesting dynamic, um, uh, particularly in caucus states like Washington State, where um, uh, we, we aligned with the Jackson forces to um, deny Mondale um, delegates. Um, uh, so yes, it, it went all the way to the end. Right. Well, there's nothing like, as you as you tell this story, nothing like, and it's not a coincidence that many people who go on to great heights working in politics cut their teeth in caucuses and convention politics because it, it really is boots on the ground, hand-to-hand combat, all the all the tools in the toolkit on display there. So that's that 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 is certainly your story as well. Well, pretty soon after that, you work for Gary Hart and then you're connected to the, the senator who replaces Gary Hart in the US Senate. How does that connection come to be? You know, almost every job or client I've gotten has been because of a connection. Um, uh, not that I was given special uh, access to a job that no one else had, but a friend of a friend knows of a job opening and calls you. And that's how the Worth uh, job came about. Um, uh, a friend of mine who uh, worked for Tim Worth uh, and did his environmental um, legislative policy called me and said, they're looking for a deputy chief of staff uh, to back up the chief of staff and keep an eye out on the Colorado politics. And because I had lived in Colorado, um, worked for Hart, it seemed like a, a perfect fit. And so um, I went and interviewed and, and uh, got the job. And uh, it was my first time working on the Hill, even though I had lobbied, I'd worked on congressional races and had lobbied Congress. And it was so eye-opening. Um, 
and made me a better campaigner and consultant uh, that time inside government. Um, and, and this uh, is and this is Congressman, you know, Congressman Tim Worth had, had been elected to the U.S. Senate in 1986, Congressman from 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 Colorado, and you were you were on Senator then Senator Tim Worth's staff, elected in in, in 1986. What does the Senate look like? What does the Hill look like in the mid 80s? That's an era, some real giants of of the political scene. I mean, you had had Al Gore, Joe Biden, Bob Dole, Ted Kennedy, Moynihan, Robert Byrd, titans of the Senate. But what was your experience there working uh, in the Senate in that era? One of the big differences between the uh, 80s and 90s and today is that back then, Um, most members of Congress were focused on getting things done. Um, uh, Not only was it their job, they thought it was good politics to deliver for their state and to carve out some area nationally that they could focus on. Um, Al Gore was already ringing alarm bells about uh, global warming, which was called the greenhouse effect back then. And Tim Worth was very involved in telecommunications reform. Um, And so many senators had a national issue that they wanted to make their mark on. Um, And it wasn't enough just to raise issues. You know, you, you were respected if you were able to put together a coalition and, um, and pass significant legislation. How do you get from the Senate working in the Senate? uh, And how do you get to California? Again, it was a personal connection um, that led me to Barbara Boxer, um, uh, a Sierra Club staffer in Southern California, Bob Hattoy, um, uh, called me um, when I was in DC and said, hey, I know that you and Jim wanna move back West. Um, Barbara Boxer is looking for a Senate campaign manager. I was, who's Barbara Boxer? and He's, she's a house member from Marin. She's great. You know, she can, she can do this. Um, uh, and uh, I went in and met with her um, and I was quite skeptical walking into the meeting because everything I read was she is in fourth place. She can't raise money. She's on her third campaign manager uh, and some heavyweights like Jerry Brown might get into the race and make it even tougher. But after an hour of meeting with her and her, uh, one of her house aides, Karen Olick, um, uh, who became a friend and political consultant in the future, um, after an hour of meeting with Barbara Boxer and Karen Olick, I just thought I had never felt such a strong connection to um, a a candidate. Uh, She was a great communicator. She understood how to make an emotional appeal. The way she talked about issues I thought had uh, a very special quality. And um, she had a drive to do this. I, you know, walked back across the hill to my husband's office and said, oh my God, I'm in love with Barbara Boxer. (laughs) And uh, later I got hired and ran her first 1992 Senate campaign and then went to work for her in the Senate office, 
running her state operation for 10 years. We'll, t- we'll talk about the California of the mid, late 80s, early 90s. We think of California now as the bluest of blue, but it wasn't that long ago. I mean, the era you, you talk about, not only, uh, as you say, was Senator Boxer, now then Congresswoman Boxer, not the front runner on the Democratic side. Uh, it was very much uh, uh, competitive in terms of Republican versus Democrats. So talk a little bit about the political climate in California uh, in, that, in that early 90s. Yeah, California in the early 90s was a purple state at best. Um, uh, Senator Pete Wilson had just gotten elected governor in 1990, um, uh, defeating Dianne Feinstein. Um, uh, the other senator, Alan Cranston, um, was re- longtime progressive Democrat, was retiring. Uh, and so two Senate seats were up in 1992. Um, uh, the Wilson seat and the Cranston seat. And of course, 1992 was Bill Clinton's run for the presidency. Um, and uh, California was a top target for the Clinton campaign. There was a massive coordinated campaign advertising. Uh, and uh, it was a swing state that was very important, you know, for the Democrats. Um, so uh, a very different um, climate. Um, Boxer ended up winning that race with less than 50% because there was a third party candidate. Um, Ross Perot was running on the national level as a third party candidate. And that led to many candidates around the country filing to run in Senate, can- Senate campaigns. Um, uh, so it was a tough race and uh, uh, barely won. Um, Part of the uh, change in California was both a demographic change um, of the growing diversity of the state, but also voter registration, vote by mail, were liberalized by the legislature. So uh, barriers to registering were lifted. Vote by mail in 1992, you needed an excuse. It was what was called absentee voting. I'm proving that I'm absentee. And as those things were liberalized, that also increased access for Democrats to vote. So it was a very different state. It was an incredible campaign where I learned so much because uh, of the size and complexity of California. Thinking about that primary or the general election, is there something you look back on or maybe at the time you thought of as a turning point in that campaign? Again, either in a primary, which, as you say, was very competitive or a very competitive general election. Is there a turning point, an inflection point that you look back and think of and said, if we hadn't have done that, then then maybe this wouldn't have uh, ended like it did? In the general election, Barbara Boxer was running against Bruce Hershenson, um, conservative television commentator on LA TV. Um, and he had a lot of name ID from that. Um, he had a very friendly, warm affect, as if he was, you know, your favorite uncle. And uh, here you had this uh, diminutive, feisty woman from Northern California as the opponent. But Hershenson had very conservative views that were out of touch with the majority of Californians. Uh, He wanted more offshore oil drilling off the coast. Um, He thought nuclear power should be unlimited. Uh, He opposed, he wanted to repeal Roe v. Wade. Uh, As we did research, so Mark Melman came back and said, 
people just don't believe Bruce Hershenson really has these positions. He's such a nice guy. The, the ads don't work. The messages don't work. We have to figure something out. So we decided, let's keep digging and let's try to find him in his own words saying these things. He was quite careful in the general election because I'm sure his consultants were telling him that he was out of touch as well. And we ended up finding obscure C-SPAN footage. We found, I think, a radio interview. And so for each of these attacks, the research staff just dug so deep. We went to the uh, Hershenson had worked for Richard Nixon. We went to the Nixon archives in Washington, D.C. So it was leave no stone unturned. And in fact, when we showed ads that were nothing but Bruce Hershenson in his own words, talking about offshore oil drilling off the coast, they worked. That's a great example of messaging often looks one way in the vacuum of a poll, but it's a much different bar to clear to actually make it credible to voters. That's that's a really good example of that point. Uh, you mentioned in this era, the Anita Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas hearings in 92, um, partially because of Senator Boxer's race, uh, as an example, became known as the year of the woman uh, because many women had, uh, had won uh, races Talk a little bit about that. Did that feel like a legitimate turning point to you? Or is that sort of media hype and um, not really the, the real story of that election? The Anita Hill hearings were a galvanizing moment for women activists who were outraged by the Senate's treatment of Anita Hill and the fact that it was an all-male judiciary panel who... Uh, who heard her story. Um, it seems incredible now, but uh, there were only two women in the Senate at the time, so they couldn't serve on every committee. Um, many committees were 100% all male. Um, so those hearings were a legitimate um, uh, galvanizing moment. I think the reason that Barbara Boxer benefited from that was that we were ready to ride the wave. Uh, we had already decided that women were a key target for us, uh, both in fundraising and in votes. At the time, most donors were men, even small donors were men. Um, we had an old fashioned snail mail fundraising program and uh, we gambled, uh, put like all of our extra money into direct mail uh, fundraising prospecting to uh, women donors. And uh, we were waiting until closer to the primary, but then when Anita Hill happened, we were, let's just go. It's October before the June primary, but we have to take advantage of this moment. And it really paid off. Uh, we ended up with 65% of our donors were women. Millions of dollars came in the door, including many larger donations came in the door from people who uh, didn't think Barbara Boxer had a chance. Uh, and as we all know, money begets money. And so when you, we could show fundraising success, um, that opened uh, more pocketbooks. I don't think the race turned on the question of sexual harassment or Anita Hill, but the way that 
the way Barbara Boxer campaigned on uh, sexual harassment in Nita Hill was to attack the Senate, not to talk about sexual harassment as a crucial issue in every voter's life, because it isn't. She, we had a great ad produced by Jim Margolis and Mark Armour that was, I'm going to shake that place up. The Senate needs a wake-up call. And connected that to, we need jobs. We're in a recession. We're running a country, not a country club. You know, so it was a, a message that spoke to women who were galvanized by Anita Hill, but it also spoke to all voters who were frustrated with inaction in Washington during a recession. Would it be fair to say that that was the catalyst that helped her get through the primary? Definitely. Okay. Um, the, the fact that the media started writing about all the women running in the wake of Anita Hill elevated her candidacy um, against better known and better funded mm -hmm. opponents. Um, so that again enabled us to raise money. Volunteers uh, just started showing up at the campaign headquarters. Uh, I was there one day when someone walked in the door and said, I have $25 and I want to give it to Barbara Boxer. We didn't know this person. They weren't mm -hmm. on a list. They had seen her on TV and wanted to help. It seems like an early phase of what we've seen more recently of, of the grassroots um, fundraising, these low dollar uh, fundraising, a real model for that. In 92, not just Senator Boxer, but Feinstein and Carol Mosley Braun, Patty Murray, there's you know, numerous others uh, who, uh, who, who came to symbolize that moment. After the election, you, you set up Senator Boxer's Senate operation in state. It, you know, that's a big job. Any, anybody uh, anybody setting up an operation for a new senator, but when that state when that senator represents California, I suspect that's an even 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 larger job. So, uh, uh, what does that what does that look like? How does that work? I loved being state director for Senator Boxer because uh, California is such a diverse state, economically, geographically, ethnically, politically. Uh, we set up offices all over the state. To the surprise of many Republicans, Boxer was the first uh, senator to have a full-time office in Fresno in the Central Valley. Very red place then and now. She was the first senator to set up an office in the Inland Empire, the LA suburb, suburban counties of Riverside and San Bernardino, um, because she wanted to represent all the people and find that common ground. And organizing her schedule uh, in a state the size of California was also a challenge. Um, uh, but as a result, I got to visit all 58 of California's counties repeatedly. It was a huge opportunity um, for learning about the state and its people and its economy. One of the things that has driven me in my career is uh, a desire to learn as much as possible. I love learning. And I think out of that comes judgment and uh, a honing of your strategic skills. And so the, the Boxer Senate office, while it took me out of electoral politics, was a great opportunity to learn more about California and, and learn a lot about local politics. I did take leaves of absence to run her reelection campaigns. Right, right. 
Right. Um, well, you know, in that in that era, and I'm sure others as well, you've, you've over the years have had to hire dozens, hundreds of people over the years for various positions from entry level to very senior. Obviously, there's core competencies and you're looking, you know, there's the basics that anyone is looking for. But what are you looking for when you're hiring somebody? How can someone stand out in the job process? When I'm hiring, the number one thing I look for is communication skills. Can this person write well? Uh, Can they communicate enthusiasm and thoughtfulness? And then in person, can can they communicate one-on-one? Because communication is at the heart of political campaigns. It's at the heart of an elected official's office. And that really sets people apart. I'm also really picky about typos and spelling. If I have a stack of 100 resumes for an entry-level position and 10 of them can't spell my last name or can't have the wrong title for the candidate I'm working for, they're just out. If you're not going to pay attention to your own resume and cover letter, then what kind of service are you going to give constituents or our campaign or my clients? The other thing I look for is, are they an organized thinker? Can they organize their thoughts as you're talking to them? Because I think that is a key to someone who's also going to be an organized worker. What about on the other end of, of the process in terms of managing people? I mean, you, you, I'm sure you've had staffs of numerous people at given times, and the managing trait is not necessarily the same trait that gets people like you, people like me, into politics in the first place. A lot of us are not natural managers. What have you learned? What have you picked up about managing people over the years? I think one of the most important things in managing people is to be very clear about your expectations. What is the deadline for this work? Exactly what are you looking for? Because you can have people go produce a five-page memo when really all you wanted was a page of talking points. It's on you to to make those expectations clear. Uh, you mentioned Senator Boxer was a, was ran four times for Senate, four tough races. You know, not no um, because uh, my sense is because she was such. Uh, such a uh, feisty, to use your adjective, and, and, and identified with a strong brand of progressive, uh, progressivism, even as California became a bit more blue, she was always uh, somebody that Republicans were never going to give a pass. So four active, tough reelections. Uh, so as you work through that, uh, you, you, as you say, you set up her office, you put on your boxer hat every six years when it's time to run her for reelection. But you know, aside from that, being in the in the boxer world, presumably you had numerous uh, options ahead of you. Uh, you 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 elect a senator, you reelect a senator, you you set up an office. How did you think through that phase of of your career? You you had options. You could have done a lot of different things. Presumably, how were you thinking about that phase of what you wanted that next chapter of your career to look like? I never really had a career plan, and if I did, it might have turned out differently. Working for Boxer in her Senate office was a natural transition from the campaign. Um, Going back to my first job as an environmental organizer and lobbyist, I'd always been driven by policy and the ability to make change. And I wanted her to succeed. And then because the first election was considered a fluke by most pundits and journalists, winning with less than 50%, we had something to prove in the reelect and won that 
more handily. And then I expected Boxer to retire after her, the end of her second term. She'd never pledged to retire after two terms, but there was an expectation by most of us that she would leave the Senate. And then after 9-11, a few weeks after 9-11, um, she called us up and said, I'm running again. I, I can't leave at this moment in time. And I had been thinking about my future heading into the end of her term and uh, whether I wanted to do consulting or work for a nonprofit advocacy group or, or something else, but decided to uh, stay and do one more boxer campaign in 2004. Um, and then after the 2004 campaign, I left and uh, formed a consulting firm with two friends, um, uh, still connected to boxer land. Once you're in boxer land, you never are allowed to leave entirely. And then when she, again, in a surprise, decided to run in 2010 for a fourth term, um, managed that campaign. So you start your own consulting firm. What did you learn in that process? What do you wish you had known when you started that process? That's a, a serious undertaking in any situation, starting your own, your own business, your own firm. Talk a bit about that. I was completely unprepared to start a consulting firm. Uh, I'd never worked in private business. All of my jobs had been nonprofit advocacy, government, or campaigns. And I'd never worked in a consulting firm um, before. If I had it to do over, I would have gone and worked for a uh, consulting firm and learned more about what you need to do to succeed. And that would have made our first couple of years a little less rocky. I think understanding that you are now running a small business and that is going to take a significant amount of your time is really important. The second thing is I had never had to do marketing because when you have a full-time job, you don't have to go look for a, a job. Um, so as a consultant, you have three jobs. One is doing the important work for your clients. That is probably why you get up in the morning. The second is running a small business and making sure that you have the money to pay your staff and pay your taxes and everything else. And then the third is uh, marketing so that you have a continuous flow of clients and, and can work on something interesting a year from now. And so instead of one job that you have as a full-time campaign staffer, as a consultant, you really have three jobs. Um, and uh, balancing those, I think, is a big challenge for, for any uh, campaign consultant. Um, unlike people in public affairs or public relations, uh, our business is so cyclical that there is no election this month. Right. <laughs> you know? well, so, what have you picked up about marketing? Do you have something tangible? I mean, you know, you had some really great advice about how to stand out in the interview process for people trying to, to get a job. Uh, is there something tangible, something practical, obviously being good at your craft and having good reputation are really the most important fundamentals. But a lot of times these decisions come between two or three firms, two or three consultants. You know, do you have a, a tip for, for how to how to stand out in that process, something you've picked up over the years? 
when you're pitching as a consultant, I think it's really important to be clear about who's going to be involved in the campaign and how the work is going to get done. I've heard so many pitches from uh, pollsters and media consultants, uh, researchers, um, as I'm putting together a team for a campaign. And it all sounds great. And then you get into the campaign and it turns out the pollster you spent two months talking to in the pitch process isn't really involved. Um, you're mostly dealing with a more junior person who may turn out to be great. Um, but then you're disappointed. And then the next time that that firm shows up in an RFP process, I think, well, am I really going to be dealing with the principal or is it going to be someone else? So it's not a negative for a, a firm to come in in a pitch and say, you're going to get my strategic abilities, but you're also going to get my vice president who is excellent at organization and keeping everything on track. And then we have a junior researcher who's helping us. That's great. That, that's a great package. And I know exactly what I'm getting. One of the other factors is owning a business, running a business. Is there something tangible uh, you've picked up over the years about how to do that right? I think the most important thing is treat your business as a client. Mm and give it the attention that you would be giving a client. I discovered I really didn't enjoy the nuts and bolts of running the business, but it's essential so that I can do the things I do enjoy. Treat your business as a client and, and you're, you're going, going to end up with more success. Um, is there one you or know, two? One other... oh, yeah, please. One other thing back to RFPs, mm -hmm. one of the most effective things in a pitch that a consultant can do is to show that they've done their homework, understand the local situation, understand who's on the committee interviewing you, research them. Google is your free research assistant. Look at what previous campaigns run by that organization or that coalition cost and how it turned out. Because sometimes you're interviewing three very similar consultants who are all well-respected, have worked on tough campaigns, you know them personally, and so you know they're good. But what sets one of them apart is that they've invested the time to do the research and show that they understand what they're getting into. And that makes me feel that they're going to put that same kind of energy into helping me win the campaign. Is there a signature win wearing, when you've been wearing your consulting hat uh, that, you, uh, that, that stands out in your, in your time as a consultant? One or two things that you're most proud of? One of the toughest races I worked on as a consultant was battle over medical malpractice in Washington State in 2005. Washington state is one of the few states without limits, uh, caps on medical malpractice awards. And the medical association had been working for years, preparing to run a campaign to uh, establish caps um, similar to the California caps. Um, 
And uh, I was hired by the trial lawyers as a general consultant to fight the ballot measure. And we assembled a team. Uh, Amy Simon was our pollster. Steve Murphy and Mark Putnam, then partners, were our um, media team. And Ed Lazarus was part of the mix. Um, and we started, I believe, about 15 points back uh, because people trusted doctors. They didn't trust trial lawyers. They thought this was all about money. And they think that's the worst part of lawsuits. Um, frivolous lawsuits like the McDonald's coffee cup were in the news. So we started with really everything against us. That campaign, we won and succeeded in defeating that um, because we realized through research that if you told a personal story of someone who would be af affected by this cap, that was uh, incredibly powerful to voters. Um, and we avoided demonizing doctors because they're so popular, you can't really do that effectively, uh, but said there were a few bad doctors. There's a few bad apples. And so the fact that we focused on personal stories of people who were injured through medical malpractice and would be directly affected by this uh, cap had it been in place, completely transformed the campaign. And we did some of the typical things with ballot measures, like finding the fatal flaw, read the fine print and things like that. It was a really great team that was super motivated to look for any advantage we could find in the research uh, and then communicate it as well as we could while being outspent. <laughs> From the strategist perspective, I often find that ballot measures are, are more enjoyable because uh, you're starting from scratch in a lot of ways. You don't have the natural Democratic versus Republican cues. Uh, so the coalitions that are forming and the messaging that is forming is, is often very unique uh, to that given issue, to that given area versus partisan races have a more cookie cutter feel to them. Uh, and so ballot measures are, are a lot of fun strategically. You mentioned that having your own consulting firm is like having three jobs. One other role that you've been elevated to is to the uh, president of the AAPC, the American Association of Political Consultants. I know you're passionate about that. Can you talk a bit about the AAPC and your, and your work? Yeah, the AAPC is uh, a trade association for political consultants. And our mission is to help consultants uh, make their businesses thrive. Um, and to welcome uh, younger consultants um, into the profession. Um, I'm very devoted to opening up the doors of the AAPC to more women, more people of color, to reflect the profession, which is still heavily white male, um, but it, it's growing in diversity as America is growing in diversity and uh, our association, you know, should reflect that. Um, I also think there's a great opportunity to encourage talented young people to look at this as a profession. Um, uh, political consulting gets a bad name when you read stories about huge fees that are not justified or consultants with ethical challenges or just the idea that money plays such a big role in politics. 
But if all the good, talented, ethical people opt out of political consulting, what's left? Uh, and I think it is uh, a great place to help the next generation um, uh, get involved in political consulting. And I think it's great for business if you are a consultant. Um, the networking is um, unmatched, really, with people from all over the country getting together when it's safe to get together and again. There, and there are meetings and seminars. And what are some of the other resources that the AAPC uh, has at its disposal that, that one yeah. has access to if you, if you become a member? Yeah, there's a membership directory. There's uh, an annual conference. There's regional conferences. We do webinars on specific areas of law. We've uh, filed lawsuits on behalf of parts of the industry um, against robocall restrictions. Uh, we filed a lawsuit to try to get political consultants into the PPP program uh, because political consultants and strip clubs are two of the only exclusions from PPP. And so we're advocating on behalf of the industry. There are several consultants that I work with regularly now that I first met at an AAPC meeting. And one of the things that I enjoy uh, is also uh, breaking bread with Republican uh, consultants as well, because this is a bipartisan. And of course, there are some people who, who, are, who are neither Republicans or, nor Democrats, who are nonpartisan or polypartisan. But how? Uh, but I, I find that a very enjoyable uh, piece of it as well, because I am, am, uh, see a lot of the folks on the Democratic side frequently um, through other other uh, activities, but but to really be able to have experiences with Republicans, I find a lot of a lot of fun. So folks should go to the AAPC website. I know that there are memberships for students and younger people as well, beyond the the more business centric memberships as well. So it really is a great resource. Yeah, and for um, students, we've just started an internship program that the AAPC Foundation is funding entirely to place um, students into consulting firms of our members and give them uh, an opportunity to see it firsthand. And so we um, are, we've just uh, announced the first six internships. Oh, that's um, a great, a great and program. Uh, I uh, am really uh, passionate about uh, that program and, and expanding it into the future. So if you're a student listening and you're intrigued by what the life of a political consultant is like, uh, check out the internship program. Well, how could anyone not be intrigued uh, uh, after after this <laughs> conversation? You've been very generous with, with your time and also your advice. Is there any other advice you would give to you know young people or people looking to get into the industry? Is there anything we haven't touched on, uh, tactical nuts and bolts advice you've given? Is there anything else that you would suggest? If you're a young person who wants to explore a career in politics, I would recommend never turning down an opportunity to get involved. Um, you may think that you're a brilliant writer and that you should be a speech writer to a top candidate uh, right out of school. And that may well be true. You're probably not gonna get there if you only apply for speech writer jobs. If you have any opportunities to get involved in a campaign, even as a volunteer, um, that's gonna help you understand what campaigns are about, it's going to help you make connections, help you off into the future. Um, I'd also say never turn down an opportunity to have contact with one of the senior 
people in the campaign. There's an intern I'm still connected to from one of the boxer campaigns who drove me to the airport one day. When I worked on the heart campaign, I was offered an office in a closet off the campaign manager's office. I took it in a second because just watching how he did his work every day was an education that was irreplaceable. And who, um, and who, and who was um, the manager? I don't know if we touched on him earlier. Who was that 84 manager? Uh, Pudge Henkel was okay. the manager who was a friend of Gary's from uh, college and uh, a uh, super nice guy, really well organized, but everyone else on the staff had turned down the closet office. <laughs> I just wanted to learn and wanted to have uh, contact with uh, um, the people who were running running the ship. Yeah, so much smart advice there for really anybody at any phase, but especially looking to get in. One of the very last things I like to ask people is something I've borrowed from uh, the economist Tyler Cowen, and it would be the, the Rose Kapolchinsky production function. What makes you different? There's a lot of smart people out there, a lot of people who work hard, but what do you think has made you different? What is unique about you that you've been able to be successful uh, in this industry? I think one of the things that uh, sets my work apart is that um, I'm very disciplined. Um, if the research says that we need to talk about jobs day and night, that's what we're going to do. And that means you have to be willing to say no. Um, and so many people put being loved ahead of being disciplined um, that campaigns can lose their focus and uh, end up uh, in a puddle somewhere. Um, uh, I've never been afraid to say no to the education event or the healthcare event when we're supposed to be doing jobs events day and night. The other thing is that I've never stopped learning. Um, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And uh, uh, particularly through a long career where the digital revolution has been astounding, if you don't keep learning, um, you are not going to be able to serve your clients uh, or your campaigns as well as you could. Um, when I started uh, in politics, uh, voter records were kept on uh, three by five cards in a card file. And uh, I, I love this quote who said, learning is where experience meets reflection. And uh, I really believe that and uh, am so committed um, to uh, continuing to learn. And that's allowed me to um, thrive in 2021, just like I did in 1991. Well, on, on the topic of continuing to learn, is there something, a book, a, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have to be especially weighty necessarily. Maybe it's more of a, a comfort food, but is there something, a recommendation you would have, a book, a television show, a product, a recipe you've been making, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? Well, I'm lucky that my husband loves to cook and he is the primary cook in our family and has been for 30 years. But I like to bake. And during the pandemic, I've been baking like crazy. And my new favorite book is uh, Dory Greenspan's Cookies. It's a book, an inch thick, and it's all cookies. 
Um, and uh, that has made the, the pandemic a lot more palatable. Great. Well, thank you so much, Rose. I really appreciate your time today. Rose Kapelczynski, thanks so much for your time. Great to be with you, Zach. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.